0: Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the, into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, If you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his, to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Ilum, where, they were, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we would have sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they are to prepare what they, are, what they bring in and that it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it is, was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, "I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them: At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God." That evening, quail came and covered the camp. Some gathered much, some little, and when they had measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much—two omers for each person—and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, "This is what the Lord had. This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil." Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be not any, there will not be any. Nevertheless. Some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you the bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like like coriander seeds and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put manna with the tablets of the covenant law that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Well, just um, picking up from where we left
1: the earlier service this morning, I want to say if you ever get the chance or you're able to come and sit down the front, that's great when everyone's singing at full voice, because you've got the music from the front and all the music from behind, and it was, it was just magnificently encouraging. So if you get that chance, uh, I think uh, you might find that encouraging too. Well, we come to our last study in this section of the book of Exodus, uh, in chapter 16, I said um, when I was being introduced earlier on that I've got uh, three kids, uh, and my um, kids are great. I think they're the greatest of all kids. So you may have great kids, but uh, I think mine are the greatest of all kids. Uh, But like um, any parent will tell you, kids can be hard work. Uh, And one of the hardest things, being a parent, is when you've worked hard to be nice to your kids and they are not grateful. So, you know, you uh, take them out to the shop to get their favourite dessert, you watch a DVD with them that they enjoy, you eat ice cream, you give them permission to do something else, you you give them a really good time and their response is just to be moody and grumble. And you think, ah. I've worked so hard to show you love and care and all the things you enjoy and your response to me is moodiness and grumbling. I I don't know, I mean, my kids don't do this, yours don't do it either, but I've heard it happens. (laughs) But what we've heard today as we've looked at chapter 16 of Exodus is that the nation of Israel is like this with God as well and it's unbelievable. Israel had been slaves in Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance from their oppression. And in stunning displays of power, God crippled the nation that held them captive, saved them, set them free for the first time, started leading them towards the promised land, so not just out of slavery, but heading into abundant blessing. But on this journey, where the journey of salvation, of hope, of deliverance, they complain. They mumble and groan against the God who has saved them like an ungrateful child. It's just stunningly unbelievable that they could do this. And the thing is, they don't just do it once, they do it over and over and over. And you think, oh my goodness, what is going on with you? The complaining is um, particularly bad. It's, it's not just complaining that they didn't get something they wanted. It's not just like your kid says, oh, you bought me ice cream, but you didn't buy any chocolate sauce. Like, it's not that they just didn't get something they wanted. They're complaining out of their faithlessness. They're actually complaining because they don't believe or trust God has good plans for them at all. It's unbelievable, it's almost embarrassing to think that God's people could be like this. God has shown them outstanding displays of power in, in the plagues that came on Egypt, the going through the Red Sea. And now they complain because they think, "Oh, you've done that, but you can't feed us. You've done those incredible things, but you can't feed us. Let's have a look at the first of the, the cycles where this happens. It's actually at the end of uh, chapter fifteen, verses twenty two to twenty seven. We heard that read. On the journey from the Red Sea, they just come through to the land of Shur. Uh, they're heading southeast from Egypt towards Mount Sinai. And in verses twenty two, uh, sorry, twenty three and twenty four, they complain. They came to Mara, which is the Hebrew word for bitter. You might remember in the Book of Ruth, Naomi changes her name to Mara because she's bitter. Uh, so they come to Mara. Uh, and they couldn't drink the water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? (coughs) Now, in response to this, Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord shows him a piece of wood, he throws it into the water, and the water becomes fit to drink. So the Israelites have a need. They don't pray to God faithfully. They complain, but nonetheless, God provides for them by Moses throwing the wood in the water. It's a kind of relatively small miracle you think. Like well God's part at the Red Sea for goodness sake. So taking the edge off this bit of water uh, isn't really a problem. But it does expose the faithful the faithlessness of Israel. This this doubt that God could provide this doubt that God would even have good plans for them is beginning to emerge. And what happens, and it will happen in the other cycles of this same complaining as well, is that God actually makes this grumbling of theirs and provision of his a test. This is all about the tests that God brings to his people. He actually gives them a test of their faithfulness. He turns the water, Moses throws the wood into water, becomes fit to drink. But there, second half of verse 25, the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commandments and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I bought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So God is saying, here's a test. You need to trust me. You need to take the words that I speak and live by them faithfully and obediently. And if you do, it will go well with you. But if you don't, you ought fear the same fate that came upon the Egyptians who didn't listen to my words. After this, they carry on their journey and they come to a place called Elim and there were 12 springs of water. So... Lo and behold, God was always leading them towards abundant water. They just hadn't been patient enough. And there's 12 springs of water at this place, uh, a full number, uh, 70 palm trees. And they camped there near the water. Of course, God wasn't going to fail to provide. God wasn't failing to provide for them. Their, their complaining was foolish and premature. So you think they should have learnt their lesson. But you come to chapter 16 And the journey continues from Elim to the desert of Sin. That's got nothing to do with Sin as in moral wrongdoing. It's just the name of the place, uh, Sin. Uh, They come there on the 15th day of the second month. And verse 2, here it happens again. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And it's pretty much the same complaint. Except now it's, it's, it's ramped up a bit. The Israelites said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and had all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. So not only are they now failing to think that God will provide for them, they're looking back on Egypt with rose-coloured glasses. Remember, Egypt it was fabulous. We were feasting all the time. It wasn't quite what happened. And they think it would be better if they were back there. And they, they, now, they now actually uh, impute negative motives onto Moses and by implication onto God. The reason you brought us out wasn't for our good, wasn't for, for any benefit for us. You brought us out here so that we would die in the wilderness. That was your plan all along, wasn't it? To starve the assembly to death. Well, at this point, I think you wouldn't be surprised if God got a little grumpy and treated Israel like the unfaithful children they're being and maybe sent them to their room or gave them a, a, a talking to. But at this point, God doesn't do that. At this point, what we see is Moses... Uh, Again, Moses speaks to the people. He, he, um, uh, the Lord says to Moses what he's going to do, and we'll come back to that. But Moses speaks to the people, and uh, he reminds them that you need to be very careful with your words, because you're speaking not against me and Aaron, you're speaking against the Lord Himself. This is offensive, and yet God doesn't get angry. In verse twelve, we jump ahead. He notes their complaint. I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. And he's patient and gracious with them. And he explains what he is going to provide. He told Moses first, uh, back in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven. and That will be the food. Uh, and he goes on again to repeat this uh, as the chapter unfolds. But again, what I really want us to see is this is another test of faithfulness. This is another test of faithfulness. It's not just, uh, okay, you've complained, so you're going to get what you want, that's fine. What God is going to provide for them is a test. The bread from heaven will test their faithfulness. And the test will be, will you trust my words? Will you trust my goodness? In this way, verse 4, I will test them. And see whether they will follow my instructions. This is kind of quite revealing, I think. As we read through Exodus, uh, we see something Israel doesn't see at this point. They're being faithless, they're complaining. And what God is saying is okay, you're going to see my grace, but as part of this, I'm going to be testing your hearts. Will they trust his words? Will they trust his words? God sends them not only this bread from heaven but also quail, quail in the evening, manna in the morning. Now the provision of manna is a famous Bible story Uh, and again we we tend to think of it as a story of God's provision. Uh, The Israelites were hungry in the wilderness, God provided manna from heaven and that's true, it is a story of provision. But it's also a story of this test and in chapter 16 how this test works is mapped out, uh, explained in some detail. Uh, What we'll see here is whether Israel will trust God's words and act faithfully or whether they will be disobedient and not trust him. And it it all unfolds in the way that that the manna appears and how it's preserved or not preserved. Uh, It's miraculous in the way it appears and miraculous in the way it disappears. Uh, And what they need to do is follow God's pattern for gathering and eating. So on days 1 to 5, what happens is uh, the manna will appear on the ground when the dew lifts. So uh, each morning they'll come out, there's a dew on the ground, the dew lifts, and there's this manna, this white flaky substance. We don't really know what it is. Uh, the appearance of coriander, maybe coriander flower or coriander seed, uh, tastes like honey, uh, and each morning that will appear. And what they are to do is to collect an omer of that each. Uh, Now, we left off actually from our reading verse 36 of Exodus 16, which should be a memory verse for everyone because it tells you what an omer is. (laughs) Apparently, an omer is a tenth of an ephah. So (laughs) that's very helpful. Uh, It's about, I've done the maths, long extended calculations, and uh, worked out that it's about the size of a bag of chips. Okay, It's about a bag of chips worth per person. So every morning they're meant to go out and collect this much of the manna. And the miracle in this is, not only that it appears every day from God knows where, but uh, people don't know other than it's God's provision, but that everyone always gets the right amount. So those people who happen to be effective and efficient in their gathering and they, they get more than a bag of chips worth, when they actually go and measure it out, oh, they've, they've only got the right amount. And people who didn't gather as much for whatever reason, were, uh, not as quick, not as fast, didn't, weren't as effective, when they actually go and way, they, oh, they, they do have enough. It's remarkable. God will provide equally, equitably for everyone in the congregation. It's not based on their skill. It's not based on their fortune. It's not based on their speed. It's just his gracious provision. Every day, each one of you will have the same amount, enough to eat, enough for the day. There's no bonus for greedy people uh, and there's no penalty for slow people. God will provide the right amount for all. But we get to verse 19 and here's a key thing. No one shall keep any of it until the next morning. You have this for 24 hours, as it were. You can have it for your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner, but you can't keep it for breakfast the next day. Why not? Why not? What would, that, what would be the problem with doing that? Well, if you had to stockpile it and keep it and hang on to it for the next day, it might well be a sign that you do not trust that God will provide it again tomorrow you might be saying, I better hang on to a bit of this because you never know if God will feed us again. And given the faithlessness they've shown so far, this is the test. Do you trust me to provide, not just once, but ongoingly, recurringly? So don't save any till the next day. Well, of course, people being people, verse 20, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning. It was, now... This is, you failed the test. You didn't trust God. You stockpiled it. You didn't look for his fresh provision on the new day. You tried to make arrangements for yourself. But God thwarts that and becomes full of maggots and goes foul and begins to smell. And Moses is angry that they have failed to trust God. Now, to make the whole thing even more miraculous, the pattern changes on day six. This is how it works on days one to five. When you get to day six, uh, something different happens, verse 22. This is what the Lord has commanded for day six. Tomorrow is to be a Sabbath day of rest. That is, day seven will be the Sabbath day. So uh, on day six, bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it till morning. Here the pattern's different. On day six, go out and gather uh, and you will gather twice as much and you will keep some to the next day and it won't go off. Uh, and, and that's remarkable as a miracle as well, isn't it? Because you might think, well, the way manna works is it only has a 24-hour shelf life and then it rots. Uh, well, we'll have to trust God. We have no choice now but to trust God because it doesn't work to stockpile. But actually, that's not quite the whole story because you get to day six and no, now you do stockpile. And trust God for his forward provision for the day. And they do And lo and behold, it doesn't go off. It's remarkable. It's a miracle. But then, further to this test is don't go out looking on day seven. Trust that on day six that I have given you what you need. You don't need to go out again. Verse 27, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather. They failed the test again. But of course, they found none because God didn't provide it on the seventh day. Just as He miraculously provided on sixth, He withheld it on the seventh. And what we find is this this failure of trust at every point in this test. And rightly, uh, God is angry. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? The Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone's to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. It's a very detailed test. It's a test of trust. Trust that God will provide each day. And trust that you, needn't go, you mustn't go looking on a day when God has called you to rest because God has something else that he wants you to do that day, to take a Sabbath day of rest and to trust him for that. And at each point, Israel has failed to trust God. Now before carrying on, I just want to take a a moment to uh, have a quick think about the Sabbath, because the Sabbath features in here. Uh, We think about the Sabbath being instituted perhaps in the Ten Commandments, but this is even before the Ten Commandments, which come in Exodus 20. It's expected that the people will follow God's pattern in creation of working six days and resting one. And God has set up the world to work that way. God has set up the world to work that day. Uh, on six days, there'll be a provision of food, including double on the sixth, so that you can rest on the seventh. I've made the world that way. Trust me, this is how it's meant to be. And I just think it's worth us today reflecting on the Sabbath and the rest and the day off. Uh, there's, it's very interesting. Christians have such uh, mixed views on the Sabbath these days. Uh, It's one of the Ten Commandments. It sits up there with don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Uh, And yet for some reason the Sabbath drops off the lists of things that Christians think are important to God. Uh, For some reason that one just kind of gets bumped aside. Uh, To some extent I understand why that is because Jesus fulfils and re-understands the Sabbath and what the Sabbath points to is actually the great day of rest in the new creation Uh, The completion of God's work that will be wrapped up in the new creation and Jesus inaugurates and initiates that in his own ministry. Uh, And yet we still see the pattern of the Sabbath uh, running right through even into the New Testament, even if it's somewhat re-understood there. Uh, So we find some Christians today who uh, maintain a a rigid strictness to Sabbath-keeping, almost like a Jewish uh, rigidity about it, uh, which probably, I think... Uh, is challenged by the way that Jesus re-challenges our thinking about the Sabbath in the New Testament. But then we get people at the other end of the spectrum who say the Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. Forget it. You know, uh, It's all about Jesus and the new creation. It's all about the future. It's all about uh, the new day that will come at the end. And there's a truth to that, but I don't think that actually undoes the principle of the Sabbath. And the principle of the Sabbath is God has made the human machine to work six days and to rest one. We're not meant to run 24-7. We're meant to run something more like (laughs) 12-6. 12 hours, six days a week and rest on the 7th and then take a few festivals through the year as well for downtime. And again, in the context of this passage, we see more of why that's the case. It's not just that God's made it that way. God has made uh, the provision of manna to work Six days on, one day off. God's made the human person to work six days on, one day off. But God also wants us to trust him and be disciplined in our trust. And the Sabbath is actually about disciplined trust of God. To take a day off says, I trust that I can down tools today and God will keep the earth spinning on its axis. I trust that I can stop working and that God's plans won't go off the rails. I trust actually that God is sovereign and doesn't need me working every minute of every day to ensure the world goes the way he wants it to go. It's an act of trust. It's healthy for us. I think we are meant to rest. I think that's the way our bodies work. We'll be healthier if we take a day of restoration and rejuvenation. It's great for us in terms of wanting to be people who bring glory to God because we take a day out when the main focus of that day will be doing things like coming to church, meeting together as people, singing his praises, uh, not doing other things but just focusing on him. And it's also a day when we just rest. We enjoy each other's company, uh, we enjoy downtime. It's a disciplined trust, though, it's something that we have to commit to doing to saying, I'm having this stuff. Now, I don't want to get fussy about it. There are days, of course, when to, well, there will be something we need to do on our, our Sabbath, our Sunday. Uh, that's okay. I, it's not a law as such for us, but it's a principle. And by and large, I think it's a principle that Christians should stick to. Now, Just as I said, we're meant to work 6-12, not 24-7. The sleep thing is kind of enforced upon us because your body physically cannot go uh, that is, it's involuntary. At some point, you just need to sleep. And uh, I've got a friend who's a sleep doctor. He's a bigwig in the world of sleep. And when you he knows uh, all of the things that people can know about sleep. But when you get down to him, when you get down to it, boil it down with him and say, why do we need to sleep, right? Why can our body do whatever it does when we're asleep when we're awake? Why, why can't it? And he says, no one really knows. No one really knows why our body can't do whatever it is it does while we're awake and we're asleep. But we do know that sleep is essential. After a very short period of time, human bodies must sleep. We don't know why they can't do it when they're awake, but they must sleep. And and his reflection, he's a Christian guy, is he thinks this is God just enforcing trust on us. You just have to sleep and trust that God will keep the world going. You just have to sleep and trust that whatever you didn't get done is okay because God is sovereign. And, and the Sabbath is the same in that it's a period of trust, but it's not so enforced. You can choose not to take a Sabbath in a way you can choose not to take sleep, in a way that you can't choose not to take sleep, rather. And so I just wanted to put that before us and say, without making it a, a, a law or a ritual in and of itself, there's something very important about the Sabbath, both as an act of a, a recognition of the way God's made us but also as an act of trust on our part, that God wants us to have that downtime and we can trust him to not, that we cannot work. So Israel here fail to trust God on the Sabbath. They go out and they, uh, some of them look for uh, more manna on the seventh day, uh, failing to trust God, not having the rest that he's asked them to take, not being disciplined in their obedience. And they failed this test. This becomes a really big symbol for the people of Israel, the provision of manna. And it is a, provision, it is a symbol not just of God's provision, uh, but of God's testing of them and of their need to be obedient. They take one of the omers of manna uh, and they keep it as an ongoing reminder of God's grace to them. So verses 32 uh, through to 34, uh, you can see the call there to take uh, a jar of this manna uh, and to put an omer of manna uh, into a jar and put it in the ark of the covenant Uh, they'll they'll put it in the ark of the covenant with the tablets of the law which actually don't exist at this point but will come later Uh, and it will be in there with the very words of God God provides not only his word and his command for us but even our daily bread uh, that goes into that covenant that that container of the covenant and remains there Uh, interestingly we didn't read this far but if you wanted to go on to look at chapter 17 verses 1 to 7 we see the next stage of the journey which is the journey from sin to Rephidim uh, and and we encounter the same problem again back to the water question Uh, there's no water on this trip Uh, they head out if you cast your eye forward uh, you'll see that Um, They camped at Rephidim. This is chapter 17, verse 1. But there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarrelled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me and why do you put God to the test? Notice how it's been flipped. God was testing them at Marah. God was testing them in the wilderness of sin and now they're testing God. This is getting more and more high-handed in their rejection and distrust of God. But they complain again. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us now children and livestock die of thirst? God's motives are actually bad, not good, despite all they've seen. Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I to do with this people? They're, always ready, they're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answers, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and in your hand... Uh, and." And in, in your hand, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go, I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders. They called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is God with us or not? What an atrocious question for Israel to be asking given all they've seen all that God has done for them in delivering them out of Egypt bringing them through the Red Sea providing them water once providing them the quails and the manna and they say is he with us or not it's staggering it's offensive it's kind of like the child who after you shower them with gifts and buy them the ice cream and the chocolate sauce then they come back to them and say well if you really loved me you'd do this you think oh for goodness sake there's something very wrong in your heart at this point Is the Lord among us or not? What has their experience been? It's staggering to think that this could happen to the people of God, that people who have known the promises and love and blessings of God could respond this way. And it's a really stark warning, I think, to those of us who know the promises of God to think this kind of thing could potentially rise up in our hearts, a distrust of God, accusations against God, despite all he's done for us. Uh, And I I think we need to be thankful that these stories are recorded because they show us how horrible that would be if that was who we are, if if that was who we became. I wonder if in our day, in Western culture, I wonder if we run the risk sometimes of not being too different. I wonder if there are some times when we, despite not only our salvation and our eternal hope, our forgiveness and the promise of eternity with Jesus. On top of that, we also have all the material blessings we could want. Many of us have homes and one or two cars and overseas holidays and nice food and good clothes and superannuation, Uh, I wonder if even despite all of this sometimes we're inclined to complain about our lot and to feel that we haven't got everything we might want which really translates to saying God has not been generous to us God has not been gracious to us I wonder if in the West this is a risk a danger for us to be alert to I wonder if we know how to trust God for our daily bread as well as for our eternal salvation. Of course, Jesus picks this up, doesn't he, in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. He's drawing exactly on this incident from Israel's life. We pray, Lord, that you would provide for us daily. And I think that that's an important prayer for Christians to have on their lips, to remember each day, Lord, we need you to provide for us today. We trust you to provide for us today. Otherwise, we might run the risk of becoming like Israel, who think, yeah, yeah, we know you can do the salvation thing, but can you give us what we need day by day? And what we don't ever want to do is become people who worry about our daily needs, Who doubt that we'll have everything we need, or who feel disappointed by what we don't have, so that we start trying to establish our own security in our own strength. I think sometimes what happens is we we make that mental separation between the future eternal life that Jesus has won for us through his death and resurrection and our everyday lives now as his followers. You know, I, I think we sometimes do make that separation thinking, uh, God has provided for me eternity and uh, all that I will uh, ever need for life with Him in His presence, healed, restored, forgiven. But today, I'm not sure He does provide all I need. I wonder if we make that distinction. We need to know that we turn to God not just for the eternal things but also for the daily things. And we need to trust God, not just for the eternal things, but also the daily things. Otherwise, we can end up compartmentalising our life and our faith in all kinds of unhelpful ways. We can actually say something that is untrue about God. Uh, we can say, yeah, ultimately God gives us eternal life, but he doesn't really care about us day by day, which is not true. That would say that God is unreliable, inconsistent, inconsistent. I think part of the problem that we face in Western culture is that we're used to having so much. Blessings are commonplace. Uh, Abundant provision is every day. We could run the risk of almost having a sense that we have a birthright to everything that we covet. If we don't get the stuff we want, we think something's wrong, something is amiss. Life's not working out right. And I think this is just becoming more and more and more the case. I remember not so long ago, if there were things that I wanted, I'd put them on a list and maybe you know, ask for them for my birthday or Christmas or something, you know, a, a, a CD or a whatever it is. Now, I think even in my own life, it's shifted a bit to if I want it, I just go and get it. So much so that when it comes to birthdays and Christmas in our family, we're racking our brains what we can get each other because we just buy what we want as we want it throughout the course of the year. It's just become part of our culture, part of our way of thinking. If I want it, I should have it, and I should have it now. If I don't have it now, something's wrong. But that can lead us to a very bad place in terms of what we think God should be providing for us and what we need to have in order to recognise that God is good. The other part of the problem, I think, is so many people in the West, so many of us, are actually so gifted... (laughs) have so many wonderful opportunities, so many abilities that we can think, well, actually, nothing's stopping me from going out and gathering all I want by myself. Uh, I have everything I need within my own capacity and power to, to head out and collect all I need for my life in its fullness. God might say that I should trust him, but I don't really need to i can just trust myself i've got money in my wallet i can go to the shop get whatever i need work an extra day collect some overtime uh, have an annual bonus so on the one hand we kind of run the risk of thinking god should supply me with my every want and on the other hand we run the risk of saying i don't need god i'll just supply stuff for myself and i think the fact is it's actually harder to trust god for our daily bread than for salvation you see when we think about salvation we know we can't get it ourselves Uh, we know that we can't get it for ourselves we just know this is one thing that's kind of out of my beyond my capacity uh, out of my ability Um, all I can do is trust Jesus because I don't have the keys to eternity but he does I can't pay the price for my own sin but he can but our daily needs aren't like that our daily needs we think, well I could get them for myself and my culture does say I should expect everything laid on through my own power or through a government that provides it or whatever it is. But what would it look like for me to rely on God for my daily bread? To actually, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, say, give me, Lord, this day my daily bread, because without you I don't have it. We could test this, couldn't we? We could do some um, kind of thought exercises to see Uh, what this might look like what would it look like for example for those of us who've got a job what would it look like to give up one day a week of work so that we could serve the church and the kingdom more you might say oh i couldn't do that because that would hurt my pay packet and i need that to provide for myself well that's true that's true but i wonder if maybe there'd be ways of thinking about it says i could do that and i could trust god to provide in that circumstance or, what about if we said, I'm going to start power giving? That is, really giving a lot of money to some great causes to perhaps serve the world's poor or just to fund a Christian mission in a big way. If I do that, of course, then I'm going to deplete my own stockpile. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow morning with as much in the bank account. I'm going to have to trust God tomorrow because I haven't stockpiled for tomorrow today. So I think we need to live on the edge here. I don't think we should be irresponsible, don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything uh, noble or right in Christians living irresponsibly and then becoming a burden on others. And if you read Paul's Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he makes this quite clear. Uh, We should look after ourselves and we should be responsible. But sometimes I think uh, we sway too far in thinking not just about being responsible and making sure I'm not uh, being a burden to others but stockpiling building in some ways my own little kingdom where I think we should be in a place where we are, are trusting God so much that we can give of ourselves, of our time, of our money, of our energy so that actually there is a gap and we think you know what, I need to trust God here Because there's a gap. And in my own capacity and strength and resource, that gap can't really easily be filled. So there's a balance, isn't there, between uh, not being irresponsible, looking after ourselves so that we're not a burden on others, but also being prepared to trust God and to not uh, simply uh, set up our own lives so that we secure our future each day after the other. Israel were. taught, taught to trust God every day for what you need to eat Jesus says pray for your daily bread trust him each day and I think as I said that is actually quite hard to do that's quite hard to do in some ways it's harder to trust God for our daily bread than for our eternal salvation Uh, and yet he calls us to do both to live lives where our eternity is staked on him and our every day rests on his provision Of course, in all of this, we do need to remember that it does point to the great provision. It does point to the great eternal provision as well as the daily. Both things are pointed to in this passage because this text I said is picked up by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. It's also picked up by Jesus in places like John chapter six. If you know John's gospel in chapter six, Jesus describes himself as what? I am the bread of life. Whoever eats meat will never be hungry. Uh, Jesus is picking up here on this where the manna was the bread of life for Israel in the wilderness. But if you read John 6, you see that he is the one who's come down from the Father to give us life. He fulfills this in the eternal way. This makes this into a metaphor, a predictor, a foreshadowing of God's greatest provision for our greatest need. Israel's day-to-day need was sustenance. God sent bread, called them to trust him. Our day-to-day needs, of course, are sustenance, but also forgiveness, hope, healing, reconciliation. And God has sent them in Jesus and calls us to trust him every single day. Israel were faithless, even offensive to God, And remarkably, he didn't just wipe them off the face of the earth. He continued to provide abundantly for them and continued to call them to trust him. And we don't receive what we deserve for the way that we disrespect God and don't trust him either. But we are called to further trust, to commit ourselves to him and to believe that he will give us what we need. we need to do this on both fronts. Our eternal hope feeding on the bread of life, trusting Jesus day to day. Uh, That's really um, where I'm going to leave it and leave this weekend for us. Uh, It's the simple Christian message in some ways, uh, the simple Christian message that we have life and hope and sustenance in Jesus who is the bread of life. But to remind us that We're not just people who look to Jesus for the one-off act of salvation. Now that we're saved, we keep looking to Jesus every day and we keep trusting in God every day to sustain us as we journey with him, as we invest in eternity, as we live out our faith in him for his glory. That's what it means to be his people. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father we thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus the bread of life and we thank you that we do live and are nourished eternally by feeding on him. We pray that you'd help us to always hope in him but we pray that once we know our salvation uh, we would know not just that we need to trust him for salvation but we need to trust him every day. We need to trust you every day. Lord for our daily bread we trust you. We thank you for your provision. We pray you would never, ever let us complain. But rather than finding one single thing to complain about, would you please bring into our minds 10 things to give you thanks for. We are richly blessed. We thank you and we acknowledge all the good you've done for us. Pray you would help us to pass the test and to live faithfully for your glory. Amen.